Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live. Welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyds. Good whoops. That's nice, isn't it? Good whoops. Maybe it wasn't such a bad idea to do a live show in a heat wave <laughs> during the a COVID day spike. Of the year so far, yeah. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first one of these since, I isn't know. it? No. And this the last one fl- of these was the, the day before lockdown here, which is strange. Yeah. And you, 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 you've only aged a little bit. God, I, I really feel like these years have had their way with me. Do you not think? No, no, no. You're looking very good. Thank you. The bromance is still alive, everybody. Um, now, yes. what's the situation with selfies, then? I'm totally in favour of selfies. But, but, I mean, are you going to be bothering these people on their way Definitely out? Definitely, for selfies. <laughs> You're going to have some kind of situation, like, like a vicar to... at the back of a church yeah, shaking yeah, hands. Yeah. We, 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 I sort of want them to kind of hang around and wait and, you know... Etc. I've never known this man say no to requests. Definitely not. So, you know, often you'll hear of famous people in a toilet and uh, they say, Give me some privacy, please. Not Why don't people want selfies, though. In toilets. Well, I no, do. no. <laughs> I mean, in general. You, you never say no to a selfie. I never get asked. No, that's In fact, we've done these live shows before and uh, I look on social media and I can see that people crop me out of the selfies. <laughs> so I have now given up even... You are the Trotsky of my selfies. Uh, uh. Um, so we should, should talk cultural, about... cultural political reference, in case you wondered. Uh. <laughs> we, should, uh, we should talk about the, the show. Cause we, we, we were going to do one of our regular live episodes and yeah. uh, I don't know what it would have been. Recently you've enjoyed a lot of nature episodes, haven't you? Yeah. Sort of things about hedgehogs and, and mushrooms. Well, maybe and cli- I mean climate and all that, yeah. I know, but I think you particularly enjoy... I do, I do, yeah. About, yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the last few weeks have been such a... Uh, I'm struggling with the right words. A lot going on. It's going to be a shit show. Yeah. Um, that, 
you, you thought we should really convene a, a cabinet of chaos. Definitely. So that's Definitely. what it's going to be today. And um, obviously the implication of that is the, the, that tweet. That you know tweet. I'm talking about? I do know that tweet, yeah. From 2015. Did know the tweet? From David Cameron. Didn't you once tell me you heard from somebody that he has that? It framed. Uh, I mean, the bigger question is, have you got it framed? I have got it framed, actually. In one of your two kitchens? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the, the nation faces an inescapable choice. Something like that. It's very grandiose yeah. language, isn't it? Uh, Stability and strong government. Yeah, with, with me. me. Yeah. Or chaos with Ed Miller. Yeah. And, and, and here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us what is happening in, in this first section? So we've we decided yeah. to convene yeah. this cabinet. We, and we're going to talk about what the hell is going on. Uh, and there's sort of three questions. There's always three questions with me. What, one, how did we get here? I don't mean how do we get here, but I mean how do we get here uh, as a country and as maybe as a world? Secondly, where are we going, uh, as in the Tory leadership contest? Uh, and thirdly, how should we uh, collectively respond? And we've got uh, an all-star, an all-star cast. It is a great lineup. Professor David Runciman of uh, Talking Politics fame. He no longer does the podcast, but he's still a professor at Cambridge uh, University. They didn't strip him of that. No, no, they the didn't podcast. actually. Um, David Gork. Two Davids. Uh, David Gork, uh, former Tory cabinet minister and political commentator. He writes for the New Statesman. Um, Rosie Carter from uh, the anti-fascist group Hope Not Hate to talk a bit about public opinion and what's happening and the extent to which some of the things we're seeing are a trend around the world. And then campaigner, activist and academic Faiza Shaheen. And we're going to talk to them in a minute. It's going to be good. And um, after the interval, we have something very exciting. The mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Woo! I think that does a whoop. I think the best whoops are the ones that you force out of people. Yeah, 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 I agree, I agree. Before we get into it, because we are talking about uh, what's uh, the situation we find ourselves in at the moment, I have prepared yeah. a little quiz for you. Right. Uh, and you can join in with this as well, about the, uh, the, the hopefuls in the Tory leadership contest. I mean, hopeful is one way of putting it, but anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, that's an interesting, that is an interesting description. That, that was as, as good yeah. as I could manage. Not bad. title, two not, sides okay, not bad. to every Tory. Okay. Quick fire then. Number one, named after a battleship. Penny Mordant. How do you know that? Well, it sounds like a mm, <laughs> name of a battleship. The HMS Penelope. Oh, I thought it might be Mordant. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Okay. All right. Uh, number two says yeah. that long grain rice... Fresh peas and the cheapest fish fingers you can find is literally, that word again, literally the best meal in the world. Okay, it's not Rishi Sunak because he's got like lots of breads. It's not, definitely not him. Um, oh, God. Kenny Badenoch. Tom Tugendhat. Tom Tugendhat? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was Liz Truss. Here's a quote from one of the candidates. Go on. Democracy... Like sex is a messy business. <laughs> Give me some help here. Yeah, Liz Truss, I think that's right. Liz Truss? It's Kemi Badenoch. Mm, interesting, we're at one out of three. This is not good. As of 2019, had seven fillings. <laughs> uh, okay, who's got bad teeth in the contest? Um... Well, not Rishi Sunak. He's got very, like, white teeth. Uh, oh, he does drink Coke. He's a Twix, too. Okay, Rishi Sunak. 
Yes. Well, there you go. Uh, once worked as a magician's assistant. Penny Mordant. Yes. Did you know that for a fact? I think I did a speech about Penny Morden, believe it or not, because... She because... saw you in half once. No. <laughs> Overheard describing... What am I, three out of six? I think so. Yeah. This is number seven. Overheard describing their latest big idea. This was a few years ago. Uh, they were overheard to say, we need to push to get sponsorships for the top ten motorways, like in America, where Burger King sponsors... Liz Trust, definitely Liz Trust. Got to be Liz Trust. You're right, you're right. I mean, honestly, it just, like, definitely Liz Trust. So will, will you manage over 50%? Will you be able to so we're at four, am I? Four. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so the last one. Uh, once appeared in a production of Joseph and the Amazing Technology. Okay, Penny Morden. Penny Morden. Rishi Sunak. Really? At school. Wow. Like Benjamin. So I've got 50%. Yeah, that's not oh, bad. That's not too bad. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you very much. Do I deserve a round of applause? Mm. <laughs> a little bit. I think you deserve a round of applause for some good questions. Shall we, uh, shall we get our guests out? Yes. Please give it up for David, Pfizer, David and Rosie. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for sparing your um, Sunday um, to be with us. Um, They're here because it's cold in here, you know. Yeah, 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 sure. What an amazing moment we're in. I think we should start with David G. David, do you think David G sounds like a rap star? Uh, uh, um, David R, not so much, I'm afraid. But anyway, anyway, David G, tell us sort of what you make of it. Well, that's an open question. Yeah. How long have we got? Um, it's an extraordinary state of affairs, but it's been building up for, for some time. I mean, British politics has been pretty bonkers, really, since... I left. You yeah. left, yes. <laughs> um, possibly before that. Yeah. Uh, but I think... Um, I mean, you've got the Conservative Party that's got a real problem of identity um, that has been, to some extent, concealed because Boris Johnson was capable of being all things to all people because he could say mutually contradictory things and was perfectly yeah. happy uh, doing that. Um, you've got a Conservative Party that won a general election in 2019 with a very broad coalition that wasn't necessarily particularly coherent came together on Brexit, but not really on much else. And now that we've got a different world, we've got particular crises to deal with, there's not very much that holds things together. Um, And you have also got a Conservative Party membership that I think has changed, I think has changed pretty fundamentally. It's going to be tested over the next six weeks or so, but has changed pretty fundamentally, has moved in a more populist, nationalist direction. And... Let me ask you this question, because it may be obvious to our audience, and in a way it's a a sort of unspoken assumption of political debate. You're no fan of Boris Johnson, but what is it that was sort of about him that was uniquely... Is is there something about him that was uniquely different than what came before? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, first of all, why did he win the leadership in 2019? And that's quite simple, because Conservative MPs thought he could win the general election. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know we were in a we were in a mess over Brexit, and he offered a way forward. And plenty of Conservative MPs had doubts about his integrity and his competence, yeah. but they still thought he could win an election. On that point, they were correct. Um, I think what's unique about him 
Uh, I mean, partly I think it's, he has that ability to reach, or he had an ability to reach out to a different type yep. of voter. So that's what he brought to the party. But I also have to say, I think in terms of kind of you know, standards of integrity and uh, in terms of sort of basic administrative competence, you know, he's well below the standards that a country like the UK should accept. Other people? Pfizer? Yeah. I think that's an understatement. Um, and I that, that's what I was saying. Diplomatic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been incredibly embarrassing for us to have him as Prime Minister. Um, but, you know, this is not just about Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is, of course, a symptom of something much wider, and it's been going on for some time now. And, of course, we had, you know, austerity as well. Um, and for me, I've worked on a long time on inequality, and I see, you know, the links between this concentration of wealth um, and who's in power, who is running our country, um, and the way in which um, then they are devoid of ideas. And when they're devoid of ideas that really deliver for the majority of us, you know, how do they then find these you know, charismatic so-called <laughs> people to, to lead, um, to lie, um, and then to um, ultimately you know, destruct? Um, and that, you know, this to me is really why you know, I'm really concerned but on the other side, I have got a reason to be cheerful because I can see that this now that maybe fingers crossed, you know, with Boris Johnson and people kind of waking up to the fact you can't just have these people that just lie and, you know, say, say things that make you feel good, but actually don't deliver, that there will be more questioning of some of the even some of the divisive narratives that some of the other Tory hopefuls um, are talking about. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's been terrible but I have this I'm, I'm hoping that this is the moment that people really like no the reality is really difficult you've been in charge for 12 years what have you done for us David how, how much of an anomaly is he because take, take Brexit out of I me mean, it, it, yeah. it's this huge thing to take out of it but um if you, if you take Brexit out of it um, does it look that different to the governments that preceded it, like uh, uh, Cameron or May, in, in a certain way? I mean, these weren't undramatic governments. Is, is, if you're just looking at it from a policy point of view, is there some continuity with what went before? Is all the stuff we're reacting to and talking about uniqueness, is that to do with standards and behaviour and the kind of integrity and, and that stuff? No. Um, I mean, so first of all, if you take Brexit out of it, he's not Prime Minister. So there's no circumstance in which Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister without Brexit because he doesn't have the character for it. So, But then, no, I think the stuff that isn't continuity is to get Brexit done, Johnson had to take the side of the people against Parliament, essentially. And his government has continued to behave in that fashion, including to legislate in part in that fashion. So, you know, the people against the courts, re reasserting the right of the prime minister to call a general election whenever he wants. I think constitutionally, it's not a continuity government. And that's because of the way in which, you know, the first six months of his prime ministership were just people versus parliament politics. And I think the thing that he has uniquely in British politics, is he's kind of unembarrassable about some of that stuff. No shame. Uh, which, yeah, it's, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, I was going to say shameless, but that, mm. I suspect he does have a sense of shame because all human beings do, but it's buried. Um, but he's not. He hides it well, I think. He hides it well, say. but he's not. You know, I remember the day when, um, you know, after Parliament was prorogued, he came back and he stood at the dispatch box and this kind of wall of abuse 
not just from the other side, but from his own side, just rained down on him for three or four hours. And he stood there and he soaked it up. And I couldn't think of another politician who would be able to do that. Now, you know, you can call that a strength. It's a sort of human quality that not many people have. But it made him different. Is there any historical precedent going way back for him? Well, for that level for of... Johnson. For that level yeah. of shamelessness. Well, I mean, for what we've seen. Um, I mean, I, so nothing springs to mind, nothing in modern British politics. I think, I suspect, I don't know enough about it, there were some pretty shameless yeah. 18th and 19th century politicians, but they weren't under this level of scrutiny. I mean, it's the collision between that kind of old-fashioned shameless politics and 21st century scrutiny that's done for him in the end. But it was, you know, that set of circumstances, I think, were unique. That politician in those months, and you know, how did we get here? We partly got here because Parliament wouldn't pass any of Theresa May's Brexit. I mean, if they had, Johnson wouldn't be Prime Minister. And then those six months, he was very well suited for those six months. He's been terrible ever since. Rosie, talk about it from the sort of global point of view and, and the work that Hope Not Hate does. I mean, Johnson is kind of the quintessential straight talker. And when you ask people what they want from politicians, they'll say they want someone honest, but they also want a straight talker. And the straight talking kind of overrides the honesty, because if you say anything straight enough, if you can tell it how it is in a certain way, it doesn't necessarily matter whether that's honest or not, if it's believable. But I think what we're seeing kind of with Johnson as well is that this kind of people versus politics has its limits. And actually, once you kind of rile people up against the political system, what do you leave behind? And I think this with Johnson in particular, he's kind of forced through this kind of anti-establishment politics. He's forced through legislation, which challenges things. He's gone after lawyers. He's gone after the courts. He's gone after civil servants. He's kind of really attacked democratic institutions in a way that we're going to see a bit of a mess for his predecessor to pick up. And I think that's something that we might start to see globally. It's something we've definitely seen kind of post-Trump. We're not America. We don't necessarily share all the same things. I don't want to make that comparison. But I think definitely there's, there's something in this about kind of the limits of that people versus, versus politics kind of play. Can I make the case for Johnson for a minute? Um, I mean, I'm, you know, obviously I'm not a fan of Johnson, but aren't there three things about him which are sort of he had that the rest of politics didn't have, which is a admittedly fake authenticity, a sense that he would answer a question, say what he thought, not be bound by, you know, convention of bullshit sort of answers. Um, Secondly, that he was fighting for a cause. I mean, this is where David's point, David R's point about Brexit is surely really important. You know, people in my constituency and elsewhere thought he's not just in it for himself. I mean, I don't you know, think this is correct, but just bear with me for a second. You know, they thought he's in it for Brexit because he really cares about getting it done. And thirdly, sort of slightly remarkably, he empathised with people's economic pain. He said it's about, you know, levelling up and all that. I mean, I'm very struck, David, that, you know, I was up against Cameron. Cameron's analysis of Britain was a different analysis of Britain than Johnson's. He said, look, these inequalities, et cetera, I don't, I don't really buy that argument about the portrayal of Britain. And if you think about the Remain campaign, Cameron Osborne was saying things are pretty, it goes to your point, Pfizer, things are pretty good for Remain. Whereas, you know, Johnson has introduced a whole new lexicon into the Tory language, levelling up, tackling inequality. I mean, is that, what, what I, I think am I being too generous? Um... <laughs> You are being generous, but I think that I think they're perfectly fair points, and I think you know we, those of us who are on the other side, we were 
come from different places, but, but those who are not fans of Boris Johnson do need to understand why he was as successful as he was. I think part of it is that um, there is a realignment of going on in British politics, and I do think people are voting um, less to do with, if you like, their sort of economic class and more to do with their cultural values. That creates an opportunity for centre-right parties if they can tap into it in the right way. And Boris Johnson, I think probably uniquely within the Conservative Party, was able to do that because, I mean, part, in part, it is his desire always to say what people want to hear, and he is quite astute at understanding what particular audiences want to hear, and if they want to hear about levelling up, then he'll talk about levelling up. If they don't want to hear about levelling up, he won't talk about them. So, yeah, in that sense, and, and this is where the Conservative Party may well struggle in a post-Johnson world, is that if you look at the leadership candidates, I don't think any of them have quite got the same ability to talk to those new conservatives. He was both their biggest liability and their biggest asset, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I mean, I think they were absolutely right to get rid of him, not just because he's not fit to be prime minister, but I don't think he's the electoral asset that he was. But I think it's hard to see anyone who can replicate what he was able to do in 2019. Partly it was, as David says, about Brexit and why that was such a big issue at the time. And your point, Ed, that you know, he was on the side of those who voted for Brexit. But partly you have to be an unconventional conservative to, to talk to those voters in, in, in the same way. I mean, I think there's still a trend that is moving those voters towards voting centre-right rather than centre-left. But, but I don't think they've quite got anybody who can articulate that in the way that Johnson could. But as you look at the Tory leadership contest, I confess I didn't see the debate on Friday night. I was at the Sam Fender concert. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, did they not show it on the big screen? They didn't, actually. I was quite disappointed. I did complain to the organisers. Um, uh, what do you make of it? I mean, clearly you're not as sympathetic with the Conservative <laughs> Party, but do you, do you think this is the people here that Labour should fear? That Are we going to see continuation of the culture war that Johnson started, the lying and so on that we thought about? Is, that going to, you know, is the fever going to break or is the fever going to carry on to the extent it was a fever? Yeah, I mean, I do think there was something about Boris Johnson. I mean, one, we always forget, you know, the press was completely on his side as well. You know, you can't, there's a lot of factors that explain why he had so yeah. much support. And also, you know, Brexit was a project that allowed him to distract um, and reinvent the Tory party and forget about all the years of austerity and, and harm Definitely. and make it about that and make it, and also a culture, you know, all of the kind of metropolitan elite language and all of that is kind of attached to the Brexit project. And he was able to, you know, pit groups against each other and make it seem like he was on the side. I mean, it's quite, it's quite special that an Eton boy with absolutely no idea of, um, you know, real working class lives or what it's like for ordinary people were able to, was able to make people feel that way. So on that side, it's quite extraordinary. Do you think optimism I, is part of that? So, you your know, optimism is the other For some thing. reason, he, yeah. it, people, yeah. you know, you'll often hear uh, politicians say, I believe in this country, I believe in the future. But with him, I mean, I don't know if it's a character flaw that you read about that he's like, oh, it'll be, it'll be fine, it'll be great, won't it be great, rather than think about detail. But pe- people... I think smelled on him a type of optimism that they, they don't hear. It sounds like platitudes from other politicians. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lesson in there for you know, progressives to be more optimistic. Um, and, um, of course, your podcast is good at doing that. But, I mean, I do think that um, he... 
he was, I mean, but in the end, he was good at doing that. In the end, of course, he got seen through. And those of us, you know, that are Londoners and had him as our mayor, we know, we know all about that. But um, and just, the, just the leadership contest now, yeah. I mean, I'm really uh, just listening to them. And again, you know, the lack of ideas and then bringing up, you know, really just offensive stuff, debates around trans rights, you know, just really toxic so I am concerned about the culture war issue, but on the on the flip side, I could just see from reaction and talking to people because the cost of living crisis is so at the forefront of people's minds that they won't be able. I'm hoping they won't be able to get away with some of that toxic, divisive, you know, stuff. If I can't use the other S word, I mean, it's um, you can actually, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Uh, but people looking at it, they're like, okay, that's nothing to do with me. You know, uh, people should just be yeah. able to live. And most of us are actually concerned about this real material conditions right now and what about that moment when they ask you trust politicians right now and no one put their hand up I spoke at a school in East London a couple of weeks ago I mean nine ten year olds and this young kid asked me are all politicians liars and I used to work in a school and there was something really shifted I mean it's really I don't see any of them really being able to rebuild trust in that way and that's really undermines this country but has that been a long time coming though yeah I think so I mean there's been lies in politics for a long time (laughs) yeah but but that that specific thing where trusting politicians over a number of different things yeah you you could argue it right you could argue the expenses scandal but it makes it makes it, it, it um, a very good time for somebody like Johnson to come along and say, I'm not like the rest of them, even if he's But then he, like, was, he was worse. Yeah. So, yeah. You know. Oh, I'm not like the rest yeah. of them, but in these... So then what like, does that do to people? Yeah. Right? Because then is the risk right now that we're just people despondent. You know, my, I'm, I'm staying with my in-laws and they're both working class Turkish Cypriots um, and they were like, oh, I'm so, you know, not hopeful about any of this. David, what have you made of the contest? And is the fever going to break? So, but, but, yeah. Well, partly on that thing, I mean, I, you know, I think um, on Johnson, COVID was really bad for him for the first of the qualities that you said. So he didn't actually believe it in the end. You know, he would still be yeah. prime minister if he hadn't thrown those parties. He, yeah. he just would. Yeah, he would. He's got a thumping majority. Yeah. But he threw those parties partly because in the end, he, he didn't believe what yeah. he had to say. Yeah. And that kind of gap opened up. And, you know, it's, it's been catastrophic for his relationship with his supporters. And you know, it's, whoever succeeds him has got to try and rebuild it. And it's hard to see how any of them can. I mean, what I make of it is that I think it's um, extremely enjoyable to watch and completely um, baffling. I mean, you know, if Pen- you know, Penny Morden, I don't think she is. I follow this in the betting markets. But for a while, she was the hot favourite to win. If she, you know, it's that, oh, if she is the answer... <laughs> it's a strange this is, this question. Is, this is a very peculiar but question. But you have a sort of thought that Kemi Badenoch might still... Well, it's, so this is a properly exciting contest in that I don't think anyone knows who's going to win. It's possible because Rishi Sunak, there's a big constituency of members of the Parliamentary Party and actually out in the country who don't want him to be Prime Minister. That in desperation, having realised, essentially, I think, that Liz Truss and Penny Morden, both of them are simply not up to it, that they turn to the one who really is the one they know nothing about. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. that could be bad not could be the next prime minister. It's very unlikely, but it's not impossible. And, and the debasement of politics that you talked about earlier, that you identified with Johnson as being sort of particularly unique, is that going to change? I mean, I know it depends on which candidate and all that, but is that going to change? So, the... so I just have one thought about this, which yeah. is I know if you're Liz Truss or Penny Morden and people say you're not up to it, they think... Well, they said Margaret Thatcher wasn't up to it. You know, that's a big part of the yeah. Tory myth. And yet she turned out to be. But 
Margaret Thatcher was education secretary, and she really struggled as education secretary. And she learned from that that she wasn't up to it. And she really had to change and be better briefed and better informed and so on. Penny Morden clearly was no good as defense secretary. Liz Truss was out of her depth as justice secretary. And no one cares. I mean, it's not as if they then think, right, I've got to up my game. And part of this is to do with Boris Johnson, That's because I've not met a single person, David may tell me if I'm wrong, who thinks he was a good foreign secretary. Even he doesn't <laughs> think he was a good foreign secretary. His, his so supporters... he's lowered the bar. You're basically saying he's lowered the bar for who can so, be prime minister. Yeah, he, he was a terrible foreign secretary because he was unreliable, he didn't do the work, he yeah, was a liar, he was an egotist. And nobody seems to think that matters when he steps up to be prime minister. That's the difference between all of these people and Margaret Thatcher. She thought it mattered that she wasn't good enough and she had to be better. Liz Truss seems to think that having been terrible is a qualification for the... <laughs> Failing upwards. And so this is part of the debasement of politics. Then, you know, I, don't, I think Rishi Sunak's probably up to it, but you know, his two main rivals are not. Interesting. And one of them might be Prime Minister. Rosie? I mean, I think the worry for us, I think, is that that creates a bit of a vacuum on the right. And they are playing this kind of cultural game, all of the candidates, because they think that's how they can win these people over who maybe would have voted for the Brexit party, definitely moved away from Labour, aren't quite sure where they're going, but like Johnson. But I think those people are really angry. They're going to get angrier. They're going to be suffering from the cost of living crisis, the economic impacts from everything else that's been going on. And they're going to be even angrier. And they don't really care about some of these cultural issues. I think talking about trans rights doesn't hit with anyone. At the same time, talking about these kind of cultural issues in that way, it creates kind of new, new framings, new dominant framings that allow kind of these cultural issues to continually be whipped up. So the anger is continually whipped up. And I think it's really all going to be about that kind of intersection between the economic situation that people are in, how people are feeling. I mean, people feel much less in control of their own lives than they did 10 years ago. Um, kind of uh, according to our polling, they're all pessimistic, but there's nowhere to put that energy at the moment. So I think it's being kind of played out in the wrong way by all the candidates, and they're kind of missing this. And I think we could see a kind of resurgence of a different far right. I mean, Farage is now moving on to talking about different things. He's talking about net zero. He's talking about kind of COVID vaccines. Sorry to depress everyone. David used to predict on this podcast all the time that the net zero <laughs> was going to be the next in the culture war. And that, it's starting, I mean... Alok Sharma, um, no drama Sharma, as I call him, has come out today and said um, he's going to, th you know, still threatening to resign if the candidates don't stick on climate. You know, Alok Sharma is a hard man to rouse. I mean, I don't mean that rudely, but I mean, he's a hard man to annoy. I mean, he tends to be relatively, play, you know, play it safely. I mean, is this net zero? The Rwanda policy seems to be now universally supported trans rights, Pfizer mentioned, Rosie mentioned. I mean, there is a, you know, in one sense, uh, without making us too gloomy, it seems like quite a lot of the fever is going to carry on. Well, Ed, I think, you know, first of all, we've got to remember, we've got a leadership election that is going on and the audience for everything that yeah. the candidates say is not the general yeah. public, it's yeah. not the people in this room, it is Conservative Party members. And even if it's a relatively small minority, for example, that you know, don't care about net zero, you don't want to anti- Paint us a picture, David, of your former constituency association and what they will be making of this. I think... I mean, Remind of people where you're... Yeah, so my, my constituency, Southwest Hertfordshire, so, um, you know, commuter belt, pros prosperous, leafy, 
uh, more moderate, I would say, politically than, than quite a lot of associations. Uh, and look, you, know, you will find some people who will, you know, if, if, if the candidates were talking a lot about net zero, that would put them off. Now, that's not to say that the Conservative Party is absolutely packed full of climate change deniers. It's not. But it's a minority that if you can avoid annoying, you avoid annoying. Right. So there, 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 there's that, that element there. And yeah, I, the fact that you know, what the candidates are talking about now, I'm not sure I read too much into that myself. But I sort of slightly go back to why did Boris Johnson win in 2019? It was fear of votes leaking to Nigel Farage. You know, it was mm. it was the European elections mm. in 2019 when the Conservatives were you know down to fourth, fifth, or whatever it was, pitiful number of votes. Brexit Party was surging. How do we get those votes back? Now, I think some issues resonate. So Brexit resonated. I think immigration resonates less so now, but it, it, it did then. And it may do one day again. I, I think a lot of the other cultural issues, trans rights and so on, doesn't resonate in anything like the same way. I don't think net zero resonates in the same way. Um, but it might do, and, and Farage will try it, and Conservatives will be spooked by it. And, and when you think about the people you sat alongside on the benches, do you, do you think the line for what they will stomach has changed on that stuff? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, it, it does come back to, you know, again, the sort of same analysis of, of yeah, there were people who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019 who knew he was not the right person to be prime minister, but they did think he was the right person to win, and they kind of accepted it. Um, and, uh, yeah, there is that sort of tactical assessment. We don't like it, but what else can we do? We can't let the other lot in. That argument was felt perhaps more passionately in 2019 because of Jeremy Corbyn, and I don't think Conservative MPs feel the same way as Keir Starmer, but it was also a rather convenient argument for, you know, I want to keep my seat, and Boris is the person to do it. And so um, if the electoral logic points towards you know, shifting in a more populist direction, then that's what they'll do. And of course, the political map is changing. You've got a lot of people who were elected last time round in what's you know, called the red wall seats on the basis of the Brexit coalition and the more you know, culturally and socially authoritarian voters. And you've got you know, slightly fewer in London and you know, home county seats and you know, St Albans goes Lib Dem, etc., etc. So the balance of the party has shifted. And I talk to you know, a lot of my former colleagues and they talk about the new intake saying you know, they really have got some quite remarkable views. <laughs> and they don't mean in a good way, remarkable. They don't mean in a good way. <laughs> what, what, uh, and, uh, Characterise remarkable for a minute. Uh, is that on cultural issues? Yeah, that on well, economic on, on, issues. Yeah, on cultural issues. I mean, on economic. They're issues, to the left. They're, they issues. very often to the yeah. left. Not in every case, but very often yeah. they are much more big state, yeah. you know, high spending. Yeah. Um, but but on cultural issues, much more authoritarian. So Pfizer, then, what what do progressives do if if these culture wars issues and and even net zero become weaponised in that way? Um, there's this. I guess, debate about whether to fight those wars or not be drawn into them. And what's the best response? Well, I think, I think what we've seen is progressives kind of broadly unwilling to tell a different story and to talk about the things that unite us rather than what divides us. 
And that just hasn't been a dominant narrative. I mean, even you know, under the previous iteration of the Labour Party, there was kind of a, a reluctance to kind of really engage with the culture war issues. And we just cannot afford to do that. We should make an argument. We should be fighting. You know, people understand they don't want people to be um, deported to Rwanda. or to, You know, people don't support um, some of those hardline policies. And we need to make that argument. And it's um, been really frustrating that we haven't had that... Um, that that narrative really to point to and we did some work I was a consultant on a project for the think tank I used to work at class and um, we looked at um, the press and looked at the story that the right are telling versus what the left are telling about culture and who Britain is and we just couldn't find anything from progressives there was just nothing very coherent apart from a lot of jargon about culture war that people don't understand and that you know, the first thing is to, you know, we are in, a, there's lots of good things to say about us. You, know, you look at this room today and you look at um, communities around the country and there's some really positive story to tell. And it's not the case. Everyone supports these horrific policies. Do you or, mean things like Rwanda? Like Rwanda, you know, uh, like, um, you know, this obsession about transition. Many people just like let them live, you know. And so it, it's frustrating that we haven't had that story. And, and I, I've just in, I work a lot with different progressive governments around the world right now. Um, and in Canada, I was just in Canada a few weeks ago, and they were really talking about this really strong narrative they talk about, about belonging. And there's all these, you know, think about what it would be like to talk about belonging and allowing people to, like, have this sense of Britishness that allowed them to be multiple different things. And there are things we can do um, and ways we can get through difficult issues, but we just, uh, uh, we need a story to tell. We haven't got it. Or, or at least, you know, there's elements of it here and there, but we haven't heard it from... That's interesting. Rosie, because you, you know, think about these issues a lot in public opinion. What, how do you respond to that? What, what I mean, do you think? I think? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, we've kind of touched on it across this conversation, but I think it's to do with trust. I think, I mean, political trust has been in decline forever. It's no, nothing new, but I think there's a particular detachment at the moment that progressives are not tapping into as well. And it's not just for the political class. It's also at the community level. It's communities who've lost a lot of the infrastructure that once held people together. It was the way that people had a kind of civic voice, community centres. These sorts of things are quite important politically as well. And what we see now is this kind of political one-way street where people aren't necessarily apathetic. People are quite interested in politics, but they don't find anywhere to put themselves. And that's potentially a dangerous situation for the people who kind of fell into Johnson. But I think there's a lot that progressives but, can do. But respond to Pfizer's point, which is Pfizer is basically saying progressives have been too timid in taking on these yeah. arguments, whether it's Rwanda or trans rights or other things. Is that, is that, from your analysis of public opinion, is that right? Is that... Yeah, I mean, I think as well that comes through the engagement. If you can engage with people on these sorts of issues, they become much less difficult. And I think what quite often happens is that people are quite scared of talking about these things because actually a lot of the electorate might not agree with what they're trying to put across. So it's actually really about how you do it as much as actually doing it and taking it on. But I think, yes, the progressive world should be much braver. And I think, as well, there's a lot of kind of coalitions that can be built, particularly around the economic issues that people are facing. People talk a lot about asylum problems to do with housing as a housing issue. Why can you not also talk about kind of housing problems for British veterans in the same place and start to talk about kind of shared issues and build collaboration rather than avoid the issues altogether. David, I don't, I don't know if you, um, like just putting you on the spot with this, if you can pull this out of the hat, but sort of historically when there have been things which maybe didn't sit well with the public, like abolishing the death penalty, 
or uh, legalizing homosexuality in the 60s, but they were pushed through anyway. How, how much of a political battle was there around those issues at the time? Well, there wasn't the kind of battle you have now because elite politics was properly insulated from public opinion. I mean, that's how it worked. I mean, I don't want to, it's a cliche, but I don't know how that would have gone in the age of Twitter. Uh, it was a different. It was a different world. Um, it was possible to do socially progressive things in a way where you could keep it at some distance from this, and it's it's just so much harder now. I mean, this is just there's a level of kind of freneticness to the engagement, um, which simply wouldn't have been the case back then. And there was also some trust and some deference, which has gone. So, I mean, it do, I think it does feel different. I mean, I think for progressives, the good news is the Labour Party is more likely to win the next election without Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party. I genuinely think that um, you know, the, the candidates who are standing now are less likely to win than he was. I don't know if he would have won or not, but I think you know, Rishi Sunak Agree. would run on economic competence, but he is going to be portrayed as a traitor and he'll, the party will just be a nest of vipers. And the other three have got nothing but cultural issues to run on. I mean, they really have got nothing. Yeah. So I think the Labour Party should be happier without Johnson than with him. Just a kind of pragmatic, you know, political realist. I mean, I I'm tend to be too economically determinist about these issues. But, you know, Johnson always described himself as a Brexity Heza. Yeah. which I always thought was a very good self-description of him. In other words, he was for Brexit, but he was for economic intervention. And it seems to me that part of the challenge the Conservative Party now faces is where do they position themselves on that? I mean, it isn't part of the answer on these cultural issues. I, I don't disagree with what Pfizer says, but I think most people, and I think somebody said this earlier on, looking at this contest will be thinking, we've got energy bills that are going to be £3,200, yeah. and the Conservative Party is talking about the definition of a woman. I mean, and you see, know, that's what I mean. The, the three who haven't got like, anything else, when it hits the autumn, yeah. you know, whichever of the, if it's any of those three, when it hits the autumn, it's going to look pretty thin as a prospectus. And well, also, Rishi Sunak, you know, I really have to push back on this idea that he's like, I know that you're not saying this, but this sense out there in the world is of his competency. I mean, he hasn't been competent. It's relative. Yeah, well, and it's a very low bar, right? I think it's and also, I mean, they haven't got a credible story on the economics either, none of them. They haven't got the, the, they've got the culture war stuff, which hopefully is waning and people seen through that because of the economic circumstances, because housing affordability and the rest of it. Um, and then on the, on the economics, it's, like, it's, a, it's a failure. So, yeah, on one, on one side, it's good, but progressives should still make an argument. We shouldn't just be sitting here. It's such an important time in the world and in our history to be making the arguments. I've got one more question for you, David, David G. Um, I noticed Alistair Campbell this morning in the thing in The Observer saying you know, whatever else happens, now is the time for big political reform. I mean, do you think, you know, PR, abolition of the House of Lords, all of that stuff, I mean, in one sense that might seem rather distant from £3,200 energy bills, but do you think there's a sort of deeper lesson in Johnson about, not just about Johnson, but about sort of politics and the way politics works? I and mean, it almost like you know, we sort of prided ourselves on our unwritten constitution and now sort of make it up as you go along. But it turns out make it up as you go along, you know, it's quite, you know, relies on the sort of, I'm afraid, good chaps theory of history. And when you've got a bad chap, it's kind of, you know, it's a problem. Well, look, our constitution has been really tested. Uh, you can make the argument that in the end, maybe it works. I mean, you know, Johnson has, has, has gone. Uh, I think a written constitution, there are certainly arguments for it, but I don't think it's a panacea. Um, you, Ed, you mentioned PR. Look, 
obviously, for Labour to prevail, they have to win under first-past-the-post. Sure. But I would make the point that there are three reasons why first-past-the-post um, is advantageous to, if you like, a sort of populist right-wing Conservative Party. Um, first of all, the votes are distributed pretty effectively for, and efficiently uh, for the Conservatives um, under, under first-past-the-post. Uh, um, secondly, in a PR system, you tend to end up with coalitions, and a populist Conservative Party would really struggle to find yeah. anyone to go in uh, a coalition uh, with them. And third, the Conservative Party is a broad coalition. It more or less held together, excluding, excluding people like me at the last <laughs> general election, but it more or less held together. That was partly because of Jeremy Corbyn. But um, under a PR system, you know, there are, if, if the Conservative Party goes in a populist direction, as it may do, uh, with its next leader, as it has done with its current leader... There are a lot of Conservative voters and even Conservative MPs who are sort of sitting there going, I'm not sure I can put up with this for that much longer. Um, and so I don't think the, the Conservative Party, which has been phenomenally successful uh, as an election-winning machine, can hold together uh, in those circumstances. So I do think people on, on you know, the, the non-populist sides of politics, which is pretty broad, um, should, should think long and hard about PR. Uh, we, we're going to have to wrap this up, but I think we should end with, I think we should put our guests on the spot, don't you think? Um, which is, who's going to win? Uh, uh, and give us a reason to be cheerful. Who, who wants to start? David, you caught my eye. Um. <laughs> So it's a, you know, a political reason to be cheerful. I think that the last general election was a freakish event. I think Brexit made it... You know, people said, we're going back to how politics should be in this country, thumping big majorities and governments able to get things done. I think it was a complete outlier. I think we're a much, much more sort of diverse society. Our politics is much more fractured. Two-party politics is, is dying in most parts of the world. I think proportional representation is coming now. I mean, I think the Conservative Party should be properly scared of electing a leader of some of the ones they seem to have on their radar because it could be the end of the Conservative Party. I mean, I think there's a good chance that Labour will come in in some coalition and politics will fundamentally change and it will become much easier for progressives to govern. And who do I think is going to win? So, I, you know, if I had to put money on it, I think Rishi Sunak probably will win. But I think Kemi Badenoch might. Mm. Rosie? I don't, I don't want to say. I don't know who's going to win. I okay, think. fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see. I'm not going to answer that. But I think a reason to be cheerful. Um, I do think it's this thing that we forget, that we are in a better place as society than we were. We're not America. We're not divided in those kind of ways. Um, and people are generally pretty good. Isa, who would you <laughs> least like to win? Who would I least like to win? Oh, do you know... This... Can I admit this? Um, well, one... I think Kemi Berdanot, because I think, you know, the whole package of the culture one and division, I'm just so tired of us being pitted against each other in multiple different ways. You know, I just really don't want that. <laughs> um, uh, and then, yeah, I'm, not, I'm really not keen on Rishi Sunak. I really think that part of this thing is, is the point about kind of the way he speaks and political commentators like him. And, because on the economics, you know, it's, it's not, he's not been credible. And I really do think that he will... 
Um, he won't do the public investment we so desperately need and the rest of it because we have to be dealing with all of the ways in which our public services are falling apart and that we need to do with deal with climate investment. Um, Reason to be cheerful? Reasons to be cheerful. Yeah, I do think this is a moment. I'm not, not to be complacent. We do need to go out there and make the argument as progressives, but I do think this is a moment where we can try and make that split from the divisiveness of you know how we've been, whether it be the white working class narrative or the metropolitan elite narrative, and really talk about the issues that unite us. And you know the way that RMT and uh, these strikes have really kind of got people thinking, You know how we can build solidarity between us. I think there is an opportunity to do that right now to offer something different, um, and I, yeah, and I hope that you know we have the voices to to push on that in this moment, as we, as so many of us struggle with with material conditions. Dave G. In terms of who is, I'm still not going to get used to you calling me that, Ed. But uh, <laughs> in terms of who's going to win, I think it's still really open. I think I'm probably going to stick with what I said over a month ago, um, except make it more precise. If Liz Truss can avoid imploding probably by the time this podcast <laughs> is broadcast, I, I, I still think she's got a, a, a route to win. Because if she's in the final two, she'll beat Rishi Zunak. I, I think she will. I think Rishi will run a better campaign and will be the more impressive candidate. But he's upset too many Conservatives over his position on Boris Johnson and putting up taxes. And actually, some of the wealth stuff people will see as a vulnerability for him. So I think he is still beatable. I think he's a stronger candidate, but he's still beatable. Um, reasons to be careful. I, cheerful. Cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> reasons to be careful. That's a good podcast. That's no. a good Freudian, politician <laughs> Freudian clip. There are lots of reasons to be careful. Um, you don't have any reasons to be careful anymore. anymore then. I say I don't have to. Reasons to be careless. Um, yeah, reasons to be careless. I, I, look, I think we may, we, you know, we may have seen peak populism in this country because I don't think it's working. You don't end up with a competent government. And one way or other... Um, I think sensible politics will reassert itself because I think that's where the electorate ultimately wants to go. Well, look, it's been a, a fantastic discussion. We're all we're incredibly grateful to you all. David, Pfizer, Rosie, David, thank you very much. And please show your appreciation, ladies and gentlemen. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I thought that was a really good discussion, didn't you think? I really did, actually. It's like, I feel optimistic. Every, everyone feeling optimistic? A bit more optimistic. More, more optimistic than when you came in? Yeah, I think so. What's it shaking loose in your head? Um, I think it's sort of the moment of opportunity. And it's sort of a sense of, my God, Labour might be in government. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 um, we haven't talked about that eventuality vis-a-vis the podcast, have we? No, no, no. Maybe that's we'll do that. Maybe offline. now's not the yeah, time. Maybe now's not the time. I think we carry on, don't you think? You're allowed a hobby. Yeah, exactly. But what about the cold water swimming? Isn't that my hobby? <laughs> what would you choose between? I mean, maybe that's no, that no, yeah, no, no. <laughs> definitely the cold water swimming. Yeah. Right. Let's bring our guest out. This is very exciting. We have with us today for a sit-down chat, Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. <laughs> I heard you, you started cold water swimming. Yeah, I have. Yeah, because he doesn't really mention it. Where did you hear? It's on. <laughs> you should join me, man. You're okay, bruv. It's all right, man. <laughs> but can I just say this, look, uh, it's a privilege to be here. And I speak for all the audience when I say there's nowhere else we'd like to be <laughs> on the hottest day of the year. They're proper fans, Ed. Yeah, I know. Fans, Jeff. I, mean, I think know. they're here because of the proper fans. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we spent the morning, actually purchasing a paddling pool for Luna, our dog. And it's like, it's, like having, it's like having a baby again. So for the first month, you don't sleep at all. And so uh, my daughter spent 15 years trying to persuade me to get a dog. And I said, no. On the Monday, they, they, true story, they did a slideshow, uh, including uh, some wife and I have rule with it, since they were kids. If, if my wife says no, they've got a right of appeal. Right. <laughs> Article 6, Human Rights Act. To go to dad, uh, there are some things that are not appealable, right? Because um, we derogate from the Human Rights Act. And so they did this presentation, Ed, uh, when they were aged around, uh, well, it was four years ago, and about the benefits, pros and cons of a dog, mental health. PowerPoint? E- PowerPoint. PowerPoint. Exercise, and all the rest of it. And I said, no, for 15, 16 years. And on a Monday, I said, okay, yeah. By the Friday, they'd found a dog. Uh, that's Luna. And how old is she now? She's going to be five in September. We'll have, we'll have had her five years in November. And how often is it the case that you... Because when you're out with a dog, the dog gets all the at- attention. How often is it the case that somebody will stop you to talk about the dog and then look up and... Oh, hang on a minute. It happens quite a lot. Well, the, but, but even worse than that is, uh, for a variety of boring reasons, I, I have protection officers... And, and they go for a walk with me. They bit... could come cold water swimming as well, just, <laughs> to, just to sort well, of say. Uh, I mean, actually, honestly, that would can be... I just say, Ed, they're, they're probably thinking, yeah, great, we'd like that oh, to yeah, exactly. And so they walk behind me, and so there's that, when you first get a dog, you know this, Jeff, you, you, so you th- there's, that, there's joy when you throw the ball, and she comes running towards you. And Luna, on many occasions, will go running past me to my prot team. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's about, you know, but, but yeah, that, that's, everyone loves the dog. And it, this, it, the joke in London is there, there are two ways to make friends in London. One is to have kids in the playground, right? uh, talk to other parents in the playground. Two is to have a dog. 
And it's true, it is a way... And you've become the... Are you, are you the person that walks the dog? Yeah, man, that's the other thing. Part of the presentation, yeah, yeah. Oh, we all walk, go take her for a walk. Well, that was all... We'll, we'll that was all... That, honestly, that... Yeah, yeah. all that... It's, it's all gone out the window. So we, we spent, um, we've spent a lot of time talking about the recent events and the state the Conservatives are in. How, how do you think... So, obviously, if you're on one side of the political spectrum, you're not going to look at Boris Johnson's time as Mayor of London and think it's... This is just to let you know that the interview with Sadiq Khan at the live show was interrupted by an audience member who wanted to speak to the mayor about the Silvertown tunnel development. Unfortunately, the gentleman in question didn't have a microphone, so we don't have a clear recording of him. And that in mind, we thought it would be unfair and one-sided to include Sadiq's response without being able to let you hear the protesters' points. But you can find the Stop the Silvertown Tunnel Coalition on Twitter and all the Mayor's past statements and answers to the London Assembly on the subject at london.gov.uk. I mean, on, on climate, actually, uh, t- tell, us, um, tell us about C40. And this is cooperation with uh, mayors and uh, other administrations around the world. Um, tell, tell us, for people who don't know, yeah, what's, so, what's so, happening. So, so when I became elected mayor in 2016, uh, climate change wasn't really an issue people talked about. Uh, it certainly wasn't an issue during the campaign. It, it was in 2021. Uh, one of the reasons is because you know, we've talked about it and we've taken action as well. Now, if we were sitting here in the 1950s, uh, you would have experienced coming here, the Great Smog, you couldn't have escaped uh, the, the, the poisonous stuff there was in the 1950s. Uh, and it was caused mainly by power stations in the centre of our cities. Think of Tate Modern. Think of Battersea Power Station. Uh, and it was a brave generation of politicians in the 50s who couldn't escape the smog and took action against vested interest to move power stations, to close them down in the centre and move them outside uh, uh, the cities. The problem now is you can't see this invisible killer. You can't see the nitrogen dioxide, the particular matter, and you certainly can't see the carbon, you, but you can't see the consequences. So we, I mean, I, I discovered, uh, we did some work on this when I was running to be mayor, that every year in our city, there are more than 4,000 premature deaths. From air pollution? From air pollution. More than four, just in London. There are children with stunted lungs that are always stunted because of air pollution. Adults with a whole host of health issues from asthma, cancer, heart disease, and lung disease. And I only discovered this in 2014 when I was training for the marathon uh, and uh, I, 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 I was diagnosed with asthma afterwards and I was told it's because of this stuff you're breathing in. It wasn't an issue 2016 campaign but as soon as I, I won the election we discovered some uh, work done by Boris Johnson that had been buried away that showed that in 2013 there were 500 schools in areas where the air was unlawful and the, for the vast part of our city the air was unlawful. So we spent the first year educating Londoners on how bad things were. So we put air quality monitors all across our city, outside hospitals, outside schools. So in real time, you could see how bad this stuff was. Uh, And that was to trail a bold policy we wanted to do, which is the world's first ultra-low emission zone. And it applies in the principle of polluter pays. If you've got a polluting vehicle and want to drive, you've got to pay for that because you're affecting the rest of us. This is particularly diesel vehicles, is it? Mainly diesel uh, and older petrol. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's an issue of social justice. It's poorer Londoners, least likely to own a car, who suffer the worst consequences, and also black Londoners uh, suffer the worst consequences. And we saw in the first two years, having the EULAs in central London, we reduced 
uh, toxic air by half. Just uh, and basically, just for people who don't know, don't drive cars, is the congestion charge already existed, brought in by Ken, but this is on top of the congestion Correct. charge. If you drive a polluting vehicle, you yeah. pay extra on top. You pay £12.50, yeah. you've got a polluting vehicle spring in central London. And, and it's being extended? We've extended it already once to the North Circular and South Circular. And we're consulting now on, uh, on all of London being an ultra emission zone. And here's the great news. When we announced the policy, only three, 39%, so roughly speaking, four out of 10 cars were compliant. Now, uh, 92% are compliant. So you've got more cleaner vehicles. And how much does that reduce pollution or...? 44% uh, less nitrogen dioxide, 27% less particulate matter, 6% less carbon emissions. Can I ask you about buses? Uh, buses, another good question. Yeah. So buses used to be diesel. We had 9,000 diesel buses when I became uh, mayor. Uh, we've uh, got the largest number of electric buses of any city in the Western world, and we've retrofitted all our buses. As a consequence, we've, we've reduced nitrogen dioxide in our city by more than 90% coming from buses. Would it make a big difference if we replaced all of the buses across Britain with uh, electric buses and or hydrogen of, buses? So th- this is one of the things we're trying to lobby the government about, because actually, look, what is the future of our country and our city post-Brexit, right? In my view, high-skilled, well-paid jobs. And there is a first move advantage in relation to tackling climate change because they yeah. great jobs. Where are these buses made? They're made in Falkirk in Scotland, Ballymena yeah. in Northern Ireland, yeah, and West, West Yorkshire, Yorkshire yeah. Ilford, so forth. And so what we're saying to the government is if with the right investment, and we basically buy around a, more than a third of the buses in, in the country because of our population, mm-hmm. with the right investment, we could be creating jobs around the country, well-paid, high-skilled jobs, we could at the same time be tackling the climate emergency, uh, you know, reducing carbon emissions, and it's a virtuous circle. This is why it's good to have you on the podcast. I'm thinking quite a lot about, but we need to talk about buses. Uh, I'm thinking quite a lot about this because I'm we... not sure if I mentioned what my dad did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't talk about it much. <laughs> um, because we've got this 28 billion climate investment pledge, and one of the things I'm thinking about is how we can help to have some transformation through well, listen, buses. So, 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 so Jeff mentioned the C40. It's good to make policy like this. No, no, uh, but, but, it's, but let, me, let me tell you the difference that buses can make. So, so I, I was privileged to be elected chair of C40. C40 is basically 97 megacities around the world. The New Yorks, uh, Los Angeles, Paris, Madrid, Barcelona, Dhaka, Freetown, uh, you know, Bogota. And we uh, on C40, since I've taken over, we've, in, we've got from the private sector $100 million to invest in electric buses in South, South America. So uh, um, Bogota now has more electric buses uh, than any city in uh, uh, South America and is cleaning up the air, creating jobs um, at a time when their parliament wanted to move towards LPG. So talk to us about the challenges. I mean, we've heard one of the challenges that you get as mayor on climate, but just talk to us about the challenges of transforming London into a walking and cycling city, because I know you've done a lot on that. You did a lot during the pandemic um, when obviously lots of people, including me, took up cycling for the first time. I'm now, I now cycle to work only relatively recently. And I, I must say, it's easier than... I, I was always incredibly scared. And I'm not... You know, there are obviously terrible fatalities and so on. But I find it less scary than I had feared, apart from the dog that yes, ran out in front of me. Yeah, okay, I had a big bandage on, but that was to do with the dog running out in front of me. Um, but, you know... It's not universally popular, the cycle lanes and like, but, well, but it... I mean, the, look, the, key, look, the first thing is, look, we are basically a Roman village that over a thousand years has expanded and expanded and expanded and expanded. Our population uh, on a working day is north of 10 million. If everyone jumped in a car 
if, the, if you think it's gridlock now, it'd be, yeah. it'd be you know, yeah. uh, uh, and so we've got to think about how we people move, move around our city. Uh, where they can walk, cycle, use public transport, more than a third of car journeys, more than a third uh, are less than a 20 minute walk. More than two thirds of car journeys are, are about 20 minute cycle. But the challenge is when you said most people are scared to yeah. cycle, uh, but also when you're walking, you're breathing in this poisonous stuff. So we've got to make cycling safer, more cycle lanes, using up more of the road space for cycles. Um, we've got to make it you know, wider pavements, uh, attractive in relation to walking routes and, and so forth. Uh, and in the last five years, we've increased fivefold the amount of cycle lanes and made it safer. So when you compare and contrast the number of journeys made on bikes, uh, it's, listen, one fatality is one too many, versus the number of serious injuries or fatalities is, is very small compared to the, the alternatives. Uh, and the good news is, uh, you know, last year, no consolation at all. We had the fewest number of, of deaths in our road, right. passengers, uh, uh, you know, cyclists, pedestrians, and so forth, which is good. We want to, buy, over the next 15 years, want to have 80% of our journeys uh, by walking, cycling, and public transport. Just talk to us about the C40, because this is this coalition of, is it 40 cities or more than now around right. the world? It was 40. Yeah. And we, don't wanna, we don't want to keep changing the name of year yeah. C41, C42, C43. You already had the T-shirts uh, printed. That's right. Uh, 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 so and there are now 97. And look, as you look, at the, as you look at the climate issue, there is a massive absence of international leadership from leaders of, of countries around the world um, and obviously Biden wants to lead but is having terrible trouble um, in getting anything through how important are cities in you know can cities and states sort of drive this change so, really good question so so I, I recently looked at uh, all the countries uh, in 2015 that signed the Paris climate accord there's more than 200 who signed that uh, I'll ask Ed probably knows the answer I'll ask you Jeff um, of those 200 countries that signed the Paris Climate Change Accord, how many are on course to reach the, the, the commitments they made in, 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 in Paris? All 200. Uh, <laughs> the answer is one. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, and Ed gets a bonus point. Who is the one country? Yeah, on- I did know this. I did know this. Anybody in the audience? Costa Rica. Who? No. Vatican City. No. <laughs> the Gambia. That's right. That's so one country yeah, that's is on right. course. Now, uh, uh, God, I've been out-nerded by Sadiq Khan. <laughs> <sighs> and, uh, I never uh, get out-nerded. But by anybody. Uh, 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 but you compare across cities. More than 1,000 cities have signed up to uh, the, the race to z- zero carbon. Of the 97 megacities, more than two-thirds, more than two-thirds are on course to get to zero carbon, London, zero by 2030. Can you make up the, the failure of national governments, do you think? No, we, can, we, we can't. What, what, what we're asking, uh, we, we, we met with the UN Secretary General recently, Guterres. What, what we're asking the UN to do is to have us around the table when they have these COPs. COP26, I mean, put aside what went on with the national governments, the real excitement was the ordinary punters outside the civic society cities and mayors, and to be fair, some of the private sector are really yeah. innovative in some yeah. of the things they're talking about. What we're saying to the UN is, you know, rather than us being seen as a problem, uh, actually we do cause a disproportionate amount of carbon emissions because of urbanisation, um, get us around the table because uh, we're going to be part of the solution. Part of that is persuading national governments to devolve more powers and resources to cities and mayors. Uh, part of it is by, you know, the fact, the reality is that, you know, we do stuff. Uh, I think, I think, Politicians on this issue are broken down into three categories. Um, there's the climate change deniers, thankfully fewer of those, 
there's the climate change delayers, a lot yeah. of those, and there's the climate change doers. Yeah. Cities and mayors are, are in the two doers category. You, how much are your hands tied by national government? I mean, in other words, I know on energy efficiency of homes, you've wanted to take action, but you're quite constrained. How much does that the biggest change? I mean, I, I mean, what people don't realise is we are the most centralised democracy in the Western world. We've got very few... When I speak to friends in New York or Paris or Madrid or Barcelona or Los Angeles or Freetown... I can name drop two, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the powers they have and the resources is humongous versus us, and so it's difficult. So let's talk about um, uh, the big issue that real people are talking about, energy bills. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if we were to uh, support families to insulate their homes... Uh, roofs, walls, double glazing installed. If we were to cooling as well, actually, I yeah. mean, cooling and you know, you, yeah. can, you can save their bills, yeah. but also you're creating uh, jobs. Think about the concern we've got about the, the price of fuel going up with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. If we had energy security using you know wind and solar renewable, creating jobs again, but also price stays uh, low. And there's 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 a stat we've got in London, which is which is this year, uh, last year, big pardon, last year we spent more than eleven billion pounds on uh, fuel for our vehicles, buses, public transport, in relation to um, bills, place of work pay and uh, uh, homes pay. If we were to go towards energy efficiency, what you mentioned, insulation, moving towards electric vehicles, uh, active travel, uh, we would reduce that by almost half in just uh, seven years' time. So it's, it, it make, it's cost-effective to do this stuff when it comes to you know, tackling climate change. It's not just altruistic. But also the, the real issue now is uh, we're seeing it on our doorstep. So if we were speaking five years ago, even five years ago, uh, and I was speaking even to progressives about climate change, they, they would think in their mind one or two things. One, it affects people in, uh, on an island in the Pacific or sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Two, it's an issue to worry about in 20, 30 years' time. Well, we are sitting through a heat wave. And last year, this time, literally this time last year, Thousands of properties were the victims of flash flooding. So it's, it's happening. And people now. do need. We should say this. People do need to be careful the next couple of days, particularly, don't they? We're speaking on the Sunday, but yeah. So but, we had so we had an emergency. Uh, uh, we, yeah. uh, London's version of a Cobra on Friday. Uh, and you were at it actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I checked. Uh, you, you decided to turn up, yeah. right? Unlike Boris Johnson, he, he missed five Cobras at the beginning of COVID, and he, yeah. he missed, he missed yeah. a couple this weekend. But yeah. the key thing is, uh, uh, you know, when this podcast goes out, we'll be in the red alert level four. Yeah. That means literally, although you may think it's nice, sunny, it is dangerous. And the message to you know people is, you know, keep an eye out for those who are elderly, particularly those who live by themselves, uh, young ch- children, of course. You know, keep your pets indoors uh, and just drink lots of water. Can I just ask you a broader question um, before we finish on on Johnson? We were talking at the beginning. You'll have heard you heard some of that discussion. I mean, what, what, what do you make of where the Conservative Party is going and also sort of where the way progressives should respond, particularly on some of these cultural questions? Yeah, that, well, that, that I, I, th- I think the first thing is, look, j- just because Trump stopped being president, the issues that Trump campaigned on didn't go away. And by the way, the, the, you know, Trump could make a comeback. Yeah. And just because Johnson has resigned, uh, and we know about the lies uh, and the sleaze and the incompetence, and we know about the law-breaking and the lack of integrity and this culture of impropriety in public office, um, uh, what he believes in could come back. And these culture wars are are really important because they're a proxy for other issues. And so, you know, you're asking the question about, you know, woke and so forth. I think we should set out what we mean by woke. I think woke is being somebody who's, uh, you know, anti-sexist, 
anti-racist, somebody who believes in equality, somebody who believes in human rights, somebody who believes in the right of women to choose what happens to their body. If that's what woke is, yeah, I'm woke, right? And, and let's define it and then have the discussion if you want to. But I tell you this, when I speak to Londoners who are, you know, parents skipping a meal so their kids can eat. Yeah, totally. You know, uh, pensioners totally. choosing, you know, heat over, sure. uh, 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 you know, food or food over heat. They are really not worried about, you know, these sorts of cultural wars. But the reason why, uh, you know, the, 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 some of the candidates who are vying to be the leader talk about it is because they think it, it wins them votes. And so we've got to, you know, you know, those of us who are progressives, understand what, it, what they're talking about and be confident in ourselves and our values. Tough conversations, but always explain to the public, this is a dead cat. This is not going to improve the quality of life, right? Uh, and by the way, those, you know, who are, you know, passionate about the, these boats and the channel, actually, a big reason why people come to the global north is because of displacement caused by climate change. So those on the right, should be really concerned about climate change if you're concerned about immigration, because actually the global south is struggling. Again, on a, on a, on a macro level, what we see in London, those least responsible for climate change facing the biggest consequences of it and stuff. So, and that's why I think climate change is the biggest issue of its time. So if you know, Farage and others want to you know, use that as, as, as the proxy battle, this time, unlike with Brexit, us progressives have got to understand what he's talking about, understand... Uh, you, we can't do this by stealth and talk about the positives of tackling climate change. Now, you mentioned Trump. Do you, uh, do you still hear from him? Does he keep in touch? <laughs> well, the, 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 I've got a number of Trump stories. My best one is, is, is one, of his, one of his tweets was, he, he had a tweet that, which ended, uh, hashtag, stone cold loser. Well, I won my re-election. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thanks so much for coming. I, j- I just wanted to ask you, the, the gentleman earlier, if, if people want to... Because I know you care about this stuff. There's and I know funny, politics is always balancing. There's a few things. Firstly, it is, we, we, I debate and discuss things all the time. So for those listening or watching, it's, this, this is not the first time I've had a discussion about uh, Silvertown Tunnel. Uh, it was an issue over the last five years whilst I was mayor. It was an issue during the campaign. And it's been an issue since. So that's it's fine. You know, it's really important. You find me a global city doing more than we are in relation to tackling these uh, issues. But, uh, you know, we've been pragmatic in relation to dealing with these issues. Uh, you know, that the Blackwall Tunnel is not fit for purpose. Uh, we need to find uh, a solution. I think, I think you know, it, breathing clean air is a human right, right? I do believe about this stuff. And we've got to make sure we take people with us. I think we can. And I think, you know, if the Labour Party are, are sensible and savvy, uh, you know, we can make this a dividing line at the general election. Uh, you know, the Conservatives who want to stay with fossil fuels, want to keep the status quo, you know, in relation to these issues, uh, and us who have solutions to the big challenges, energy bills, what is the future of our country, uh, you know, creating jobs around the country. Sadiq Khan, Mayor of London, thank you so much My for pleasure. joining us. I fear, as they used to say on play school, it's time for us to go now. Yeah, we, should, we should probably go too. Should we? we should probably be getting on, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate you taking time. I think we should thank our guests. We should. Sadiq, David, David, uh, Pfizer and Rosie. Let's hear it for them, please, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and thanks to our I team here today. Thanks you. to Rachel and to Joe and to Laura and to everybody at King's Place who are always just such a joy. Uh, and I think you should thank 
all of you as well. Don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, they've come really along think. on like a bloody hot day to yes. be with us. Yes. Let's hear it for you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Thank you very Thank much. You. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.